Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling podcast. I'm Pam Larickia, longtime unschooling mom and author. Join me and my wonderful guests for interviews, information, and inspiration about unschooling and living joyfully with your family. You can find the episode show notes, your free introductory ebook, What is Unschooling?, and lots more information at livingjoyfully.ca. And here's the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Pam Larickia, and this is episode number 70 of the podcast. It's the 3rd of May, 2017, as I record this intro. Yeah, number 70. I think that's pretty cool. And this week, the book chat is back. In this episode, Emma Marie Ford and I chat about the book Rethinking Autism, Diagnosis, Identity, and Equality, edited by Catherine Runswick-Cole, Rebecca Mallett, and Sammy Tamimi. In this collection of essays, the author set out to challenge some of the ways in which autism is understood by looking through the lenses of the science of autism, the cultural life of autism, and the professional interventions or treatments of autism. They note that it is written in the spirit of openness, inquiry, and the desire to help improve people's lives. As I read it, I was really struck with the many parallels that I saw between their questioning of society's approach to children's behavior and unschooling parents' questioning of society's approach to children's learning. Emma and I really enjoyed diving in and pondering the many questions that the authors raised. As a personal update this week, I've been reading Deep Work by Cal Newport. I'm really enjoying it, especially the connections he makes between deep work, learning, and flow. Learning and flow are favorite topics of mine, and I intuitively connected them to the idea of deep work that I was envisioning before I started reading, so it was nice to see that the author makes those same connections as well. And this week we finalized plans for Lissy's visit home next month, and we're all really looking forward to that. And a big thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. I really appreciate all my patrons. You guys inspire me. And I love that you're helping me share unschooling information with anyone who wants to explore ways to live this wonderful lifestyle with their family. And now they've got 70 episodes that they can binge on. If you would like to support the show, even for as little as a dollar a month, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash exploring unschooling. And this week's quote is from one of the essays, Understanding This Thing Called Autism by Catherine Runswick Cole. The contemporary cultural autism story told about people with the label drowns out all the other stories that could be told about them. Autism is a story, but it is not the story. I love that because people really are so much more than one story or than one dimension. Autism may be an aspect of a person, but it's never the whole definition. It's never their only story. As we talk about so often on this podcast, our children have their own unique interests and passions, strengths and weaknesses, sense of humor and perspective on the world. They are uniquely themselves, even if autism is also part of their story. And with that, let's get on to the book chat with Emma. Hi, everyone. I'm Pam Larickia from livingjoyfully.ca, and today I'm here with Emma Marie Ford. Hi, Emma. Hi, Pam. 
Hi, it is so nice to have you back for another book chat. Uh, this time, Emma and I read Rethinking Autism, Diagnosis, Identity, and Equality. It's a collection of essays edited by Catherine Runswick-Cole, Rebecca Mallet, and Sammy Tamimi. Uh, the authors of the essays set out to challenge some of the ways in which autism is understood. So they were looking at the science of autism. Um, they had a section on the cultural life of autism and the professional interventions or, and treatments of autism. Uh, they note in the introduction that it is written in the spirit of openness, inquiry, and the desire to help improve people's lives. And I love that they made a point to say that their essays are around challenging society's current construct of autism, not about discounting the behaviors, experiences, and challenges of children and adults who may be labeled as such. It's about thinking or rethinking the framework of autism that society has placed around them. And it's about raising questions, about challenging that mainstream literature and conceptions of autism that they feel can both limit and damage lives. So I just wanted to say when I started the book, it was challenging to get into because of the academic language that the essays are written in. It wasn't an easy read, certainly up front. But maybe really it's the writer in me who wanted to simplify their sentences to get their point across so much more clearly because my mind kept translating what I was reading into my personal language. And there was a point where I actually highlighted one and I said, what? Uh, so I thought I'd read that. Um, it was The sentence was, Asking instead, what do we need to do to create the dialogical conditions which bring forth co-creative conversation orientates the professional away from looking for evidence to experimenting with relational solutions. Or in my language, that was meet the child where they are and openly engage with them. But I definitely understood their intention was to challenge autism researchers. And that is the language that they speak. It's just been that it's been many years since I was, have been reading that language. So that was pretty funny. Uh, but by the end of the book, I was really struck by the many parallels that I saw between their questioning of society's approach to children's behavior and unschooling parents' questioning of society's approach to children's learning. So I really thought that was awesome. We are asking the same kinds of questions and always putting the children first. So what about you, Emma? What was your first impression? Yeah, I mean, I must say I really enjoyed reading the book and it was a real relief um, to read the experiences and ideas of people who were thinking critically about autism and I felt the book uh, really gave some validation uh, to some of the troubling experiences and ideas that I'd had about autism really both in my clinical work and also in my personal experience and the book I felt really articulates and elaborates on those. Um, I also I felt the book provides the reader with a framework thinking about the concept of autism which doesn't involve pathologizing or um, seeing behaviors associated with autism as a biological difference or a disorder so it's more about widening our conceptualization of what it means to be human and thinking critically about the process of labeling um, and diagnosis in the concept of autism itself but I can I can understand what you said when you said it was sort of like a bit challenging to get into um, at first because uh, I think um, if you're new 
to some of the academic terms and the language used, it can be a little difficult. And um, I mean, I do come from a background in psychology and philosophy of science. But even saying that, um, you know, like I've read the book through now for a second time and I, you know, like I did have to really sort of like read through the chapters and, um, you know, I was uh, taking notes and I probably will go back to it again because I think there are some quite complex ideas in there. Um, and I think it's sort of challenging for sort of like a few reasons as well, you know, because it's they are, they are challenging ideas that they're sort of presenting. Um, and I was going to say, I'd also read a book people might be interested in as well. Um, it's called The Myth of Autism, uh, Medicalising Men's and Boys' Social and Emotional Experiences, which was a book um, brought out in 2010 by Sammy Tamimi, Brian McGabe and Neil Gardner. And that was quite an interesting introduction to the background of some of the work. And it, the, the book is drawn on um, in Rethinking, the Rethinking Autism book. And... Um, yeah, so, and the two co-authors of that book are also um, men who've been diagnosed with uh, autism um, and they've sort of, they share their experiences of that really and the, the path that, you know, the, the struggles that they've had and the path that they've taken reflecting on that. So it's really interesting to get those sort of different perspectives. Um, I was going to say, I, really, I was really pleased the book has been written um, because it, I think it gives voice to some of the tensions and conflicts um, which have come up um, quite frequently, I'd say, online in, in unschooling discussions about how we can really think about and understand children's behaviour. Uh, autism is something that parents, they do want to address it um, in discussions and often they're wondering if a diagnosis of autism could be helpful for their child or they may have come you know to the group already with a with a diagnosis and wanting to sort of share that and understand really what it means in terms of unschooling and I think sometimes in the discussions in unschooling groups I've come across sort of quite polarized positions on both sides so um, sometimes uh, you know like an unschooling advocate might sort of say you know we need to put labels aside um, they're harmful and on the other side, then you've got parents sort of saying, but hang on a minute, this this diagnosis of autism has been really helpful to us as a family. And it's an important aspect of my sort of child's identity. And I really feel that it should be acknowledged and celebrated. So I think this is something that, you know, this, like I say, it's a tension that I think sometimes comes up in online and schooling groups. And um, I think some of these conflicts are addressed in the book, you know, in terms of thinking more about the, you know, like the relationship between autism and the, the impact of labelling and how that might play out. So, um, and I, I must sort of say that I've tended to come down on the side of setting labels aside and widening our conception of what it means to be human rather than resorting to sort of diagnosis and labelling because from my own sort of personal experience I feel that can be limiting and constraining for the child and I think with children, often their perspective and their voices aren't always taken into account. It's more difficult for them to be heard. And um, but I know I know that taking this perspective can sometimes leave parents sort of feeling dis disenfranchised and confused as to where they you know where they stand. Um, and I've also found that people do find sort of letting go of the label um, can be difficult. And this is something that's sort of explored and by the authors in the book. 
I was going to say that sometimes it feels like the parents have invested sort of like time and effort and sometimes you know like resources into pursuing um, a diagnosis and so it is very it's kind of become something that's important to them as a family and and I was interested to hear what your thoughts were about this Ham. I I mean I've had the I've had the same same experiences have seen the same kinds of discussions and I found it I find it really interesting because I mean I have personal experience in in that area in that you know my eldest I've told this story before on the podcast my eldest was going to school he in school didn't mix very well I didn't know about homeschooling you know they wanted all sorts of labels and you know there was just I I found labels helpful in dealing with the schools right and in first finding out in a bit more information especially information in in what they meant um there were tips about you know uh ways uh, i could help my child and and everything but i mean even at that time um the information i was getting I still, even when he was in school and they wanted all this, um, I was still always looking to my child and I could see from all the, from the different doctors that we visited and the different labels they wanted to come up with that, you know, there, there was no answer. Then that's in air quotes, but you can't see my fingers, (laughs) you know, so because you know what? I just posted something from the technology uh, episode that unschooling and critical thinking. You know, I had this critical thinking going on at the time, you know, while my son was in school and things were just not jiving, you know, between what they were saying and what I was seeing. Right now, the labels were were useful for school, but they were always like the school language and the school things. And that's even how we talked about it at home, because I saw an awesome kid at home, you know. Um, So to me, that was a school issue, which was, of course, why I was so excited when I finally found out they didn't have to go to school, (laughs) that they could stay home and he could just be himself. But you know, there was a lot wrapped up with um, the labels because that was the kind of language. Like I said, this was the language I, you know, kind of used to know and that they used to talk to me in and, and that kind of stuff. But I really found once I got home, I felt more comfortable because, you know, that was always the expert. They were the experts. You know, were they right? I was kind of worried. This is what I saw and this is what I believed and this is what I thought. But I was getting all this other, you know, this, all these other conventional messages, whether they're the conventional messages about school or, you know, the conventional medical messages about um, these issues. I still thought from, had to think for myself. And once we were home for a few months, really, really, I remember thinking, wow, you know, I don't need that anymore. There is zero value to having um, those label conversations or to have that information there for me. So, you know, I can, I can totally understand um, people who are at a time in their, their family and their journey, and maybe it ends up being um, something that works for their family. That's something else I was talking about in, in thinking critically, you know, to be open 
to um, asking these questions and working through them and see what really does work for your family. And mostly at that point, when it's about a child, it's, it's, does this add value to the child? You know, is this something that's making them more comfortable? You know, to know that there's other people who, who may be similar you know what I mean? Um, it, the challenge really comes if if you start seeing your child through that framework, through those labels, and you start having expectations around it. Your child has to be able to be their child. And, and you know, that was it with them and all the labels. He, he fit a little bit here and maybe a little bit here and maybe a little bit here. But that that was the the silly thing you know it's like well if he can fit sort of all these different things what real value is any one of them because it's not just one you know what i mean so that's where my my experience with label labels came in and and how they ended up in our lives anyway not really adding any value certainly once we managed to get away from the school environment yeah, I just wanted to pick up a bit on what you said, because I think I found as well that it was really nice to have a space um, within unschooling that was free uh, from labels, that there wasn't a pressure there um, to, to sort of define behaviour in terms of, um, you know, like a diagnosis that you could be free to meet your children's needs where they were at. That's something that I found sort of quite special and unique um, about some of the spaces in the online groups that I came across. And um, I also really enjoyed reading Anne Oman's essay, which is I Am What I Am, because I felt that really encapsulates um, the approach that we've taken in schooling, you know, where we do see our children for who they are and we can just meet them where they're at. And we can just sort of respect them you know as people and uh that's yeah that's something that I've really valued yeah I mean I remember when she when she wrote that I'm gonna have to go check dates now because I feel like I read that when I was um first coming to unschooling and so it really resonated with me as well because you know coming from that environment where the focus was so much on on the labels and on getting services in the schools and even some of the online groups I was involved in at that time that was the focus right um because everybody needed that help and that support but you know I I read that and really after a few few months um weeks you know, I, I, I basically kind of left those groups because that wasn't that that was no no value in our lives because it was all about that school framework. So that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought we'd touch on the history of autism because there were a number of essays uh, around the history and the development of autism and the, the, that a number of theories uh, have risen and fallen out of favor. I found that really interesting, like the, the theory of of mind, which is referring to the ability to understand that other people have their own plans, thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, and emotions, and that that is the central deficit found in autism. Then there's the extreme male brain theory and boys will be boys and the notion that educational methods that are currently used in Western schools, like the continuous assessment and socially oriented worksheets, are favored more by girls than boys and the medicalization of behaviors that lie outside an increasingly 
narrow norm of expectations. And then there's the theories around it being a biological problem with abnormalities in certain brain structures, uh, problems with neurological connectivity, effects of vaccines, etc. Yet, as they outlined in the essay, does everybody with an autism diagnosis have the same underlying condition, which was written by Richard Hassel? Uh, no genetic or neurological basis for autism has so far been reliably established, despite extensive research studies conducted over a long period throughout the world. Now, he makes it a point to say that this does not mean that there's no such thing as autism. Those with the diagnosis generally do display significant disabilities of one sort or another, although there is wide variation in the nature and severity of these. That's the end of the quote. See, he's talking about how a single root cause has not been found. Now, there was an essay understanding this thing called autism uh, by Catherine Runswick Cole uh, that, that I really connected with. She's a senior research fellow in disability studies and psychology at Manchester Metropolitan University and the mother of two young adults, one of whom has been labeled with autism. And in that essay, she shares her journey uh, her current view is that, quote, autism is a contemporary cultural phenomenon so that labeling people with it is no longer helpful. Now, I appreciated her touching on the ethics and challenges of being a mother researcher because she was in the middle of her psychology degree when her son was diagnosed. Then she dove into the autism literature, learning about autism and its cultures, eventually attending a support group for parents of autistic children, which, you know, reminds me of Anne's... Uh, I am what I am essay. Uh, Catherine describes how she was seduced by the autism culture and began to speak the language of autism and recognize behaviors. She began to spot autistic pathology in family members, including herself and her husband. And I mean, I remember that from our journey as well. Then she was introduced to the social model of disability, which sees disability as something imposed upon people as a result of social arrangements that oppress people with impairments, meaning that it was the systems, attitudes, and environments that disable people with autism. Then she came across a neurodiversity movement, arguing that autism is a naturally occurring brain, uh, a brain that's different, not a disorder. And she came to see that for her, both the social model theory and the neurodiversity movement were limited by the fact that they still treated the construct of autism as a biological fact. So the quote, uh, the stories of the medical world remain pervasive and powerful. They are the dominant meta narratives in our contemporary culture, but they are just that stories. So her experience is that the category of autism is of limited use to those diagnosed with it. Instead, her point is that autism is a contemporary cultural construct, quote, an all encompassing label, a narrative lens that accounts for every aspect of my son's behavior and personality, so much so that there's nothing left of him that cannot be accounted for without reference to the autism story. She writes, autism is, we are told, the reason why our son liked Thomas the Tank Engine, why he now likes Star Wars, why he made up words as a young child, why he likes to play chess. This thing called autism is everywhere. It is embedded in contemporary culture. Popular magazines, newspapers, books, films, academic journal articles, and conferences that both describe and produce autism. 
We've also noticed uh, uh, that the number of children labeled with autism across the globe continues to rise as debates rage about whether it's better diagnosis or an increase in prevalence that's to blame. So her point is that the contemporary cultural autism story told about people with the label drowns out all other stories that could be told about them. Autism is a story, but it's not the story. You know, so that that was my experience as well that I was talking about earlier. You know, when he was in school, that that label was a shorthanded way to convey, you know, some basic information and some expectations with teachers and school personnel. But I saw that that label really did give them that tunnel vision. They saw everything about him through that. They felt that was all they needed to know about him. Yet, as I said, once they left school, within a few months, I saw that that label did not have any, didn't add any value to our lives or to his life because I was, I would get so much more information by looking at him rather than uh, looking at the label or researching the label because I knew what I needed to do was help him where he was, um, not even have expectations of things that he would do because of that label, you know, all the different ways that they can, that you can frame it that way. I could see for myself what his strengths and his challenges were. I was there to help him, both to take advantage of the strengths that he had and support him more in depth with his challenges. He was his own unique person with so many different stories. He was so much more than that one story. So I was wondering, what about the history stood out for you, Emma? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was really interesting um, that, as you mentioned just then, that despite all of the research over the years and um, the huge amount of money, really, that's been invested in research looking for sort of underlying biological or genetic causation, um, that nothing, you know, no biological markers of been found um and sammy to me and brian mcgabe um explore um in a, this more in a chapter in the book called what have we learned from the science of autism and they sort of look in more depth at the the history and the research and also nick hodge he sort of mentions that um 21 million pounds was spent in the uk between 2007 and 2011 and the majority of that money was spent on looking at neural and cognitive systems and genetics and other risk factors. Um, but very little was actually sort of spe- of that money was actually spent on, you know, thinking about interventions or in terms of ways of improving people's lives, you know, um, social interventions or things like that, mm-hmm. which I sort of that's really sort of struck me as, um, you know, quite, quite a lot there. Yeah. Um, it's quite quite staggering really um the the book um i I guess it was just it highlighted to me how the concept of autism really has become like a rarefied concept and um yeah that you know people that are diagnosed with it can have very different sort of presentations and they can be quite different from each other really and that in terms of the sort of scientific reliability validity of the concept and even sort of like in terms of the the clinical utility of it um it isn't a particularly useful concept but it at the same time it's it's rarely questioned um you know people do generally still tend to believe if you sort of speak about autism that there is a biological you know that a biological cause has been found um and that's sort of quite a dominant story that we can that i come across anyway 
I thought it was an important point you made as well about us that you know the book is really asking people to think critically about the concept of autism but they're not suggesting that families don't experience difficulties or that you know children or adults might not you know might have ways of being that they might struggle with and that they might need support with I think that's something really important to emphasize um but at the same time um they're really asking us to sort of Go, go beyond our initial sort of conceptualization of those behaviors and to look for look in the wider context really um i thought that it was interesting um how catherine you mentioned you know how catherine really explored her experience um with her son being diagnosed with autism i think that's um a real sort of interesting position and a lot of people i you know that you can be both a professional um a and a parent of mm-hmm. someone, you know, of a child with autism, that it's not necessarily either or, that our sort of experiences can be sort of like interwoven and that we probably, most people might know someone that has, um, you know, received a diagnosis or may feel that they might qualify for a diagnosis in their lives. Um, and it's, yeah, I thought it was brave of um, Catherine really to speak about that as well. Um, and I'm glad that she has um uh, i also thought um i, w- I was just going to say actually that Catherine um talks about her experience um in more depth in a podcast um by the radical therapist and it was it was interesting to hear her speak about that in more detail yeah no it's, it's really it's really good I, I recommend it um and i think in it in it all led into me as well by thinking from an unschooling perspective about how um, it's helpful to not see your child through filters or to try and see them without filters. And it reminds me of a quote by Sandra Dodd, um, where she says, if your child is more important than your vision of your child, life will become easier. I love that quote. And um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's really good. I just And I think sometimes we can get caught up mm-hmm. um, in our own kind of perspectives and it can get in the way of us being with our children uh going on a bit um kim davies she um wrote a chapter in the book called how rude uh, autism as a study in ability and she picked up on how autism is a diagnostic construct as first proposed by leo canna which was in 1943 and she gave some really interesting sort of descriptions of um Canners and Asperger's definitive sort of diagnostic publications, um, which really explore how the concept of autism came into existence. And Kim writes, it's important to remember that the edifice that is autism was built upon a handful of child studies by both Canner and Asperger. Canner worked with 11 children and Asperger with even fewer, just four. The children and their families were referred for clinical attention assessment, placement and remediation by educational and other authorities, a process of ableism that continues to repeat itself in the diagnostic reflex that is such a pervasive practice in Western schooling. Kim describes the quite ordinary and understandable behaviour of the children in a very strange situation with their behaviour under scrutiny and taken out of context um, was interpreted as a sign of individual pathology and she says despite going on to describe in detail four very different children with varying backgrounds 
Asperger is insistent that school, the school trouble these children experience can be traced to their shared pathology. Some of the behaviours Asperger described, which he thought of as evidence of autism, included Fritz V, and he said was utterly indifferent to the authority of adults. And the same boy who sat there listlessly with an absent look on his face would suddenly jump up with his eyes lit up. And before one could do anything, he would have done something mischievous. Asperger then, he described another boy called Harrow L. And he said his behaviour was problematic um, because of what he termed as contact disturbance. And this entailed his extremely limited relationship to his environment. Through the length of his stay on the ward, he remained a stranger one would never see him join in a game with others. Most of the time he sat in the corner buried in a book, oblivious to the noise or movement around him. Such fanatical reading is rare before the age of 10. Harrow, he says, did not see the funny side of things and lacked any sense of humour, especially if the joke was on him. Kim, <laughs> Kim goes on to explain <laughs> that in this decontextualised situation, the children's behaviour was interpreted as a sign of pathology rather than a behaviour which could really be understood in the context of wider relational, social, economic and political context. Some of those children were struggling in school and rather than looking at the school context to see how this might be contributing to their presentation, Asperger instead looked for something which resided in the individual child. And this focus on the child um, versus thinking about the wider relational setting is something which continues today when we diagnose children with autism. Yeah, I think yeah, that that you can see that in in school too, right? And with unschooling, well, you know what we're going to talk about it later, but uh, all all different kinds of labels as well, even learning difficulties, disabilities, etc. You know, when you don't consider um, the context and the situation, you really can um, get a very different message, can't you? Than what's mm-hmm. than what's actually going on in the child's head. Okay, mm-hmm. we should probably move on. Uh, there were a few essays that touched on systemic theory and practice that I found really interesting because this was the first that I had heard of this term Um, but the description of it quickly resonated with me autism is viewed predominantly as an individual cognitive issue you know as you were saying above it was um, looking to the child to explain the problem but a systemic approach focuses on what happens between people how they interact with one another and one another's ideas so it's that larger picture system of people relating to each other and in this case when autism is part of the picture so that means that context is the central component and that definitely makes a lot of sense to me Um, actually just last week on the podcast I shared one of my favorite quotes from I guess it was two weeks ago now when this goes out from Maria Popova about the difference between learning facts the knowledge gathering that schools focus on and understanding the context of the information and how it fits into the bigger picture which is what unschooling values and she defines that as wisdom so a couple of quick quotes from essay 12 critical systemic therapy by Mark Hayden Lorlet. Uh, he wrote with 
systemic therapy, there are always multiple stories that can be told about any pattern of action and redescribing those leads to the possibility for new actions. Systemic therapists will often positively or logically relate current patterns to show that despite unwanted outcomes, each person's behavior has logic given an understanding of their position in context. I know we talk so often on the podcast about the value of seeing things from our child's perspective. So we see their choices and their actions from their context. And that can definitely be very different from the motivations that we might initially attribute to them. Um, we see this so often in, in some of the in the Q&A questions. Uh, listeners describe situations of unwanted outcomes. And in our discussions, we share uh, any different patterns and underlying logic that we might see when we look at the situation that they describe through the lens of unschooling and from the child's perspective. So what did you think about systemic therapy, Emma? Yeah, well, I really like the ideas and um, I think yeah I mean systemic therapy is something that um, was part of my training Mm. and um, I was quite fortunate about that and um, I was able to sort of be part of a narrative therapy team actually where we sort of uh, sat together as a team I think Mark sort of describes it in in his uh, chapter yeah Um, you know how you can have a conversation with another therapist at the same time so you can reflect different perspectives um so it's not just sort of therapist and client necessarily so you you can bring in quite a a rich sort of broad um you know like lots of different stories um to the situation so yeah it was something that i really enjoyed reading those chapters um and i like the way that mark and gail simon who's also um a, a family therapist she described the importance of thinking about behavior um in the context of relationships and also again in in the context of wider social and political framework works which is something um which is really advocated throughout the book mm-hmm. um locating you know autism the concept of autism in a wider sort of social political and historical framework and thinking about really how helpful it is to explore interactions between people. And I think I I really like it as well because the systemic approach, it takes a critical approach towards uh, dominant biomedical explanations for behaviour and it listens out um, for how how those stories might be impacting on individuals in their lives and their families. And I think it also listens out for alternatives. So it's, you know, being open and curious about other possibilities that might be and other ways of sort of being and that might be more hopeful and helpful, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is something that unschooling does a lot as well. I think people, I'm sort of thinking in terms of unschooling forums, but I guess it's really important in relationships with our children as well that we listen out to how they're feeling and, um, you know, what isn't always being said as well as what's being said. So. Yeah, and thinking creatively. So, um, yeah, and, and I guess in some in some of those the chapters about systemic therapy, um, they do emphasise, you know, that it's a it's a space where different stories can be told, and um, those stories have an impact on the way we feel about ourselves and how others feel about us, and so how we conceptualise uh, those stories are really important. And I think that is something, again, that unschooling picks up on is how we 
speak about our children, the kind of words, the language that we use and how important that is really in, you know, in terms of how we think about our relationships. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, so I like that emphasis. I think those, there are some sort of like, so there's some connections here with, uh, with an unschooling perspective and an approach. And uh, Gail as well and Mark, they, they spoke about how to engage really in playful ways and how to create a shared experience, really. And often that can be through um, meeting someone where they're at and, and seeing things from their perspective and also sort of tapping into their interests and their passions. And um, there were some nice stories in there about sort of engaging with children as you know through their interests and not bringing in the therapist's agenda really but just finding out more about the child's world and what those interests mean to them and I think that you know it's really about privileging the child's experience and um, that's something again that's something that we do in unschooling. Yeah it was so interesting when they um, you could see the difference when they let the child lead the conversation right? Yeah it it was See, yeah, seeing things from the child's perspective and that kind of takes on a whole new different meaning and allows the child to be more relaxed and mm-hmm. open and I think that's where the, there's a shared that but there's it's a kind of term it's called intersubjectivity you know where you know it's about shared experience really you both mm-hmm. have a sense of connection and I think that's what came across in those stories it wasn't um the, the you know like the therapist or adult imposing their sort of perspective on the child but it was something that they were sort of coming to together and it took both of them to really rethink and to connect um which i think sometimes it you know in more traditional forms of therapy um or in a medicalized approach it's it's that you know that you're not getting those sort of shared experiences in the in the same way um which I think is also, you know, as an unschooling parent, you're working together with your your child really to develop those sort of shared experiences and play together and be curious together. Mm-hmm. And I, so, and I think, yeah, I think that all those things are picked up with this perspective. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that piece. Um, so moving on, I also there was a couple other pl- places that really connected for me uh, and. I enjoyed the essays around the commodification of autism and the negative impact of labels. So let's jump into that. Uh, the commodification of, I like that word, <laughs> of autism <laughs> is about the big business that has developed around it. So there was an essay by Rebecca Mallet and Catherine Runswick Cole uh, titled The Commodification of Autism, What's at Stake? And uh, quote, interventions and treatment programs provide a space for the exchange of valuable information for people labeled with autism and their families and offer the quote, promise of remediation, rehabilitation, and perhaps resolution in the form of a cure. Because the predominantly biomedical model of autism gives us a situation where, quote, expert professionals coherently produce autism as a thing because they perceive a need for certain behaviors and symptoms to be explained and remedied. So I see the parallels in their, in the editors of and writers of these essays, their critique of the big business of psychiatry and autism and our unschooling critique of the big business of education 
Because with conventional education, we see a narrowly defined, quote, normal of when certain skills should be learned that's laid out in curricula and anything outside of that range is defined as abnormal and remediation is offered by experts. You know what? I When I was reading this, I just uh, started thinking about all the tutoring businesses that have sprung up in the last few decades, like Kumon and Sylvan and Oxford Learning Chains around here. And with autism, you just replace skills with behaviors and you have a very similar picture. So I was wondering if you got that impression as well, Emma. Mm, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting observation, actually. And I could really see the similarities there and um it also when i but that also really reminded me about um uh, kim davies reflections that um autism diagnosis and labeling are often used to sort of um police the boundaries of what's considered to be normal and abnormal in society and it's also an important sort of indicator of how difference can be understood and responded to now i think it's it's like a way of sifting and sorting and categorizing people um, so that they fit in to what the authors describe as like an agenda of a neoliberal society. And it made me think about how in the same way sort of grading and streaming and assessment systems in schools and the educational system might operate in a similar way, you know, so that as an agent of the state um, and in a similar way to psychiatry, um, how that employs autism diagnosis. So these kind of practices have a wider social and political and, and economic function which can serve to maintain the status quo and may even sort of replicate or perpetuate um, social and structural inequalities so the commodification of autism sort of works quite well because it's serving these wider ideals if you like um, I think it's something that John Taylor Gatto sort of picks up on as well yeah you know about how the, the operation of the school system um, I also was thinking about in terms of commodification was about the there's a, there was a chapter on the biopolitics of autism in Brazil uh, by Francisco Ortega and colleagues and they spoke about how um, about their research exploring how parents in online groups are really sort of like actively sharing information and negotiating new meanings and constructing versions of autism that fit their experience and they say consumers simultaneously consume create and shape meanings of the goods exchanged so i was thinking that parents are no longer really dependent on the medical profession for information and they can choose to um, you know access online resources uh, you know that could be sort of scientific journal articles or um, articles written by you know experts by experience other families and I was thinking just as they can just as families can really define what autism means to them um, that it also opens up the possibilities of people choosing to resist um, going down a diagnostic route so parents sort of meeting together in online groups they've got the opportunity to sort of talk with other parents and say actually I find it helpful. Uh, we decided not to go down a diagnostic route and I'm really glad I didn't because, you know, like four years on, my child isn't, um, you know, doesn't have any of those same issues. And I think, and, you know, like, and they might say, you know, if I had gone, decided to go down, a, you know, like a diagnostic route, then maybe it wouldn't have been like that. So I think parents 
have now got the opportunity to sort of collaborate together in a ways perhaps they didn't have before and they're not reliant solely reliant on medical explanations to sort of think about their experience so I was I was thinking in terms of commodification of autism you know parents can and do take an active role um, in you know in deciding what's important to them and in terms of, sort of deciding you know make, making choices that like we, we have got choices that we can make and I think um, this book raises some of those issues it kind of enables us to take you know reflect and think you know that we don't we're not we don't have to feel pressure to go down a particular route and I think that can be particularly important um within schooling because we're outside of the usual frameworks so there might be a bit more space um to negotiate you know we're not being pressured by you know the school system to make those choices you know like you talked about before Pam once you left the school environment um, you felt freer to actually, you know, be in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and as you were as you were talking about those online groups and stuff, that's right. It reminded me, I think I mentioned, you know, I was in some online groups before as I was, you know, doing research and trying to um, figure things out with the school, right? And how those, as I became more involved in the unschooling online communities, that made so much more sense. That perspective resonated so much more. And I kind of, I pulled out of those um, more, the school oriented ones, Um and how they would describe labels and how, you know, they had to hold on to that language, right? Because that's the language they had to speak to talk with the schools. And once I found the unschooling um, lens and language and perspective, it, it made so much more sense to me that I was uh, able to transition. So, yeah, I really love that point mm-hmm. about um, parents um, working together and grouping together and, yeah. and making sense of the information that's there in as it relates to their lives. Again, you know, critical thinking and seeing what's really happening in your life versus what um, other people may be telling you might or should uh-huh. be happening, right? Speaking speaking of which, let's move into labels, Um, because we (laughs) seem to buy into labels such as, well, this was the perspective uh, in the chapter, one of the chapters, we seem to buy into labels such as autism because they promise to take away the danger of the unknown. You know, I was using that label to find more information, you know, because you want to know there's a lot of fear wrapped up in the unknown. So parents consume this information in order to understand and better care for their loved ones and older individuals consume it to better understand themselves, right? You know, we may even find, you know, even as uh, Catherine was saying, as she was finding labels um, for her son, she was starting to see that in in herself and in her family members, etc. Because we're looking to discover what it means to have autism, to find a new set of norms, right? So, okay, this is normal because it's autism or whatever label you're looking at. Um, and, but that is normal within the specified subcategory of abnormal, right? One of the things I loved, uh, they shared that there's an often heard phrase in the community. If you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Because, you know, think about that for a second. If that's the case, then what's, really the point of the label if people labeled with autism have so little in common with one another then the use of the label doesn't really explain much 
And that whole idea led nicely into another essay, Early Diagnosis of Autism is Earlier Always Better by Ginny Russell. And the conventional view is that earlier diagnosis and intervention is better. It's assumed that the younger the child, the more chances there are of succeeding with treatment. Though the literature on the effectiveness of early intervention for children with autism is far from conclusive, which the author in the essay uh, surveys in some detail. But it, it also touches on the wide-ranging negative impact of labels, that lens through which everyone now views the child. So, quote, labeling theory hypothesizes that diagnosing and labeling a child as autistic will lead to shifts in expectancy and attitudes of those in contact with the child, as well as altering the self-identity of the child. And this will serve to reinforce the, quote, abnormal autistic behavior. Now, I mean, I know in my contact with the school at the time that definitely they uh, they really focused on on that label <clears throat> and saw everything through that lens uh, so I definitely saw that in action and there's so many interesting parallels uh, with the label discussion that you and I had earlier this year when we chatted about Scott Barry Kaufman's book Ungifted Intelligence Redefined and he was looking at learning disabilities um, so, so many times I saw a, an overlap between those descriptions of disabilities. Uh, so I was wondering what you thought about that, Emma. Hmm. Yeah, I could, I could see quite a lot of parallels there as well, um, particularly in relation to, you know, the impact that labeling has and as a result of sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, and how labels themselves, you know, can have a really powerful effect and what we believe to be true about ourselves and what others believe to be true about us can have a, you know, a, quite a profound influence on our behaviour and how we sort of, and how we go on to develop, really. And I think that's some of the issues that Ginny, as you mentioned, sort of picks up in in this chapter and that really that we should be cautious about proceeding um, with diagnosis and labelling from an early age because we don't really know yet um, you know the, the consequences of uh, young children and um, old, even older children having that label um, Julie just describes how there isn't enough research done yet really um, to tell us how you know how they will go on um to develop as a result of that and what she does explain um in the chapter she she mentions how once children have been diagnosed it can lead to a change in attitude from others and they might have lower expectations um they might sort of disengage uh, or feel that they can't um that they don't know how to, to relate to the child anymore because they don't feel like they have enough expertise um, or knowledge so it can create kind of a state of alienation and um, she describes really how once you've made that sort of diagnosis then all, all behavior can be sort of really thought of, tends to be thought about or can be in terms of sort of like a, a biomedical explanation which you touched upon above it you know with the school um, having this sort of kind of a narrow tunnel vision um, and that can, you know just it's how that can really get, prevent you from understanding what's actually really happening for the child and from seeing from seeing anything else 
she Ginny um, you mentioned about the research that she's she talks about and I wanted to pull out a couple of bits I thought they were quite interesting uh, she mentions that 30% of children um, who are given an autism diagnosis at age two no longer meet the criteria uh, for the autism diagnosis at age four now I, th I thought that was quite um, a, a significant um, you know piece of research mm -hmm. and in terms of sort of it's, it's suggesting that you know just because we've identified a child as having particular you know uh, symptoms at a certain age that they, they might not have that as they get older and uh, I mean children change so much developmentally um, during those years uh, that I, I find it I do find it astonishing that they are diagnosing children actually really young. Um, and Ginny's done some research herself, which has looked at two groups of children who had, again, they had severe autistic type traits and they were measured at the age of two. And one group received an autism diagnosis later on. Um, but the, the, the children that didn't receive an autism diagnosis, they actually went on to have better outcomes as adolescents. So it's actually suggesting that sometimes actually it's, it's better to wait and see what happens rather than to jump in and to sort of go down a diagnostic route. Because if you can, you know, the children actually did improve um, in terms of those sort of initial behaviours um, over time without any intervention. So I thought they were really interesting um, studies that she cited there. And uh, it sort of leads, it, sort of, it also challenges us to reconsider. I mean, traditionally, autism is known as a sort of like a neurodevelopmental disorder. Um, and it's considered to be like a lifelong impairment. And I think, you know, Catherine described in the first chapter, you know, how devastating, you know, she felt, devastated she felt when she was given the diagnosis and um, she was given some statistics that, you know, that it's a lifelong, um, you know, like condition and that, you know, f you know, her child may not live alone they might always be dependent you know it was quite a bleak outlook that she was given and and I think in this chapter sort of Ginny said that you know we don't really know that that's the case and actually it seems like children actually do um you know do go on to sort of like have good outcomes in adolescence without intervention so and um she Ginny says sort of when interventions are not proven and when iatrogenic effects of labelling are not disproven, the benefits of early intervention paradigm for childhood developmental disorders should really be questioned, at least until there is enough concrete, com concrete evidence of real benefit. And um, I think that's an important point that she's making. So, and I, I did happen to meet uh, Ginny. Um, a little while ago and uh she's working at um exeter university in the uk and she's actually doing a current research project which is actually looking at the impact of diagnosis and labeling in um, in relation to autism and the neurodiversity movement so i think that's some really interesting and she's kind of quite she's quite welcoming of people getting in touch with her um to sort of share their experiences and um she's she's uh yeah interested in collaborating with people about that oh wow that's very interesting thank you. yeah no it was it was a really interesting uh to think about i because i love that that's you know the point of so many of these essays is just to question um that to show that there are questions in the conventional 
paradigm, right? So, you know, that's something we as unschooling parents are used to considering. You know, they're they're not saying yes, no, they're not demanding one way or the other, but they're saying, hey, you know, there's there's some information out here, there's experiences with other parents, and, you know, there are questions around here that are worth discussion, you know, that's really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So speaking of, there was an essay titled Schools Without Labels, uh, which was written by mm-hmm. Nick Hodge. And Nick has an interesting backstory. He was a teacher of children with special education needs and disabilities for 15 years before becoming a university-based academic with a specialism in autism. So when he was studying for his doctorate, he began questioning many of the canons of special ed that he had previously accepted without question, like the idea that diagnosis and labeling is always in a child's best interest. So after his 15 years um, as a teacher, in his 17 years of work as an academic, he's encouraged students to adopt a more critical engagement with labels and to consider their value and impact. So his experience is that, quote, students are reluctant initially to give up the meanings of labels that they are accustomed to, you know, because they've built an identity around it. And parents have fought hard to secure a diagnosis for their child and so have invested heavily in this being an enabling act. You know, they're helping them. They're doing this to help them. It's their key to get resources for their child. But in the essay, he questions whether these labels have more negative impact instead. He makes the point that, quote, the mystique of medical terminology that surrounds a diagnosis creates an authority for the assignment to children of the devalued status of deviant, disordered, different, or special, meaning these are children whom only doctors can understand and make better. Parents and non-medical practitioners become hesitant and uncertain as to whether they are able to support such a child without the expert knowledge of the particular syndrome that medical professionals assert they have. You uh, alluded to this a little bit earlier. His parents end up can end up minimizing their experience and knowledge of their own child and stop engaging with them from that space of intimate connection because they feel like they don't have that expert knowledge. So the label becomes the totality of the child's social identity. As we were talking earlier about seeing the different stories where teachers tend to use a child's label to explain a child's, say, lack of learning, Some disabled students offer alternative perspectives, like the lessons were boring, teachers didn't understand their needs, other pupils were messing about in the class, or feeling that no one expects them to do well, so why put in the effort? He makes the point that resistance to labeling is not a call for an abandonment of assessment. These are different things. It is vital that we come to know who children are, what they enjoy, fear, their hopes and aspirations for the future, their worries and concerns, what motivates them and what turns them away from learning. He's describing right there exactly what unschooling parents do. We come to know who our children are. And one of the messages that came up a number of times throughout the essays and that fits well with what so many unschooling parents has found is that if you focus on the child's individual needs, their strengths and their weaknesses, there is little value to having the label. It doesn't add anything else on top because you're already at the root. So is there anything else that stood out for you, Emma, about labeling? Well, yeah, picking up on what you've just said as well about, um, you know, resistance to labelling is not a call for abandonment of assessment. I think that's a really important point. And also 
if a parent and child is struggling, um, I think it is also it, it can also be important to seek support and help with that. So I don't think anyone's saying that you know like don't don't get support. Um, we're saying that maybe it's helpful. It could be helpful to reach out. Um, for example, you know, like the systemic, the systemic therapeutic work that was described in the book, I, I think that could actually be really valuable um, just to open up new conversations within a family if they are struggling with issues and they feel that, you know, that they, they um, need to have, uh, you know, support with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's other there's other approaches as well that I've sort of come across recently. Um, for example, like th- play for example, which is another approach that's really non-pathologizing and it works on sort of like strengthening relationship between parents and the parent and the child. Or um, there's a, another approach called video interactive guidance, which again looks at increasing the connection and it looks to do that through sort of shared interests and you know being playful together and um, increasing the connection. So I, I think that there are another there are a sort of like a number of options um, that you can sort of take up um, because I think it some parents may, may get into a situation where they don't go for you know don't go for help because um, mm-hmm. they don't want to feel that they're sort of going down a diagnostic route um, you know but there, but there are options like non-pathologizing options available but I think you do have to do your research um, in terms of finding a therapist and you need to sort of speak to them first and really kind of find out what kind of position they're taking on, on this um, before you engage with the, you know with therapy and um, that goes back to the, the kind of critical thinking as well and um, and, and being reflective and taking uh, your child's perspective right you know if that's yeah. something that your child is uh wants to pursue right yeah yeah or at least is interested yeah, you don't because you want to be forcing them no definitely mm-hmm. yeah no I, th- I think that's important and i think some of the the approaches described here um are very sort of child friendly um and they do sort of take the child's perspective into account so if the child was interested they might find that it's actually a positive experience you know uh, they you know the hope hopefully the therapist might be playful um and yeah. engage them in things that they're interested in and really come at things from their perspective uh which i think could be helpful mm-hmm. if they were interested in in doing that and it isn't seeing it as the 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 child's um, sort of difficulty. It's sort of thinking about the relationships in the family um, and how to sort of Im- Im- improve that really, and how to better support each other. I guess so. Um, yeah, I, re- I mean, I liked Nick's uh, chapter as well, and um, his his approach to labelling, and I really picked up on how it can sometimes be like a double-edged sword, you know, that you can have the both negative and the positive aspects of it. So it might give you access to certain benefits like, you know, certain um, services or, you know, like a community of people that you might feel that you can trust. Uh, But they also acknowledge that some of these things um, don't always come to fruition in terms of services that often families are left without the, the support that they expected, you know, when they engage with the service. So, and Dan Goodley says that, you know, the biopolitics of autism, that as soon as they give with one hand, they threaten to take away with another. So there's a lot, there's pros and cons, which I suppose if uh, as parents, it's, some, it's something that they have to navigate. 
Um, and as unschooling parents, we do have the potential to sort of choose not to to to, re- to choose to resist it, I guess. Um, and in terms of labelling, Sami Tamimi, um, he's done a really interesting talk which explores these issues in more depth about labelling. It's called Autism, Do Labels Help or Hinder? And that's available on YouTube. Oh, excellent, excellent. I'd be interested in that. I'll definitely put the link to that in the show notes as well. Um, so just to wrap up, I think one of my favourite questions that was raised in the book was in the essay the ethics and consequences of making autism spectrum disorder diagnoses by Saqib Latif and I hope I pronounce that properly uh, the most recent edition of the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders the DSM-5 now defines autism as one big spectrum just autism spectrum disorder without any of the subdivisions that were in uh, the fourth edition He writes, there is no dispute about the existence of ASD behaviors. Instead, the dispute is about whether these behaviors amount to a discrete, naturally occurring category that the diagnostic label represents. Is it fair, necessary, or useful to reduce down to a one-dimensional construct of ASD the evolving personality, experiences, diverse histories, and contexts of a growing child with a highly plastic brain? Human behavior involves social and moral dimensions and cannot be understood without taking into consideration the values of that individual, their family, and indeed their broader cultural milieu. One wonders, given that there is such a massive variation, whether it should be called a disorder spectrum or just a human spectrum. And that really connected with me because, you know, that basically outlines my journey uh, you know, and how I got to that point. So I, I really, I really enjoyed that piece that kind of gave me goosebumps there. But uh, I thought that was, it was a really interesting book. And I thank you so much for recommending it. Uh, it was really fascinating reading and lots of, lots of interesting questions to ponder. And that's kind of my, my favorite thing to do is to dig in. And it was fun to see the parallels and the connections with unschooling as well, because I was surprised how um, deeply I saw them relating to one another, the kinds of questions that they raised. So was there anything you would like to say to wrap up? No, just, I mean, just thanks for, you know, discussing the book. It was, I thought it's really important book to talk about. And, uh, you know, I think it's opening up spaces for new conversations about these um, issues. And I think it, hopefully it would be helpful to families and I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you very much, Emma. I really, really appreciate all the time and effort that you put into these episodes. I love, I love uh, chatting about that, this stuff with you. So thank you very much. Okay. Have a great night. Okay. Thanks, Pam. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes at livingjoyfully.ca forward slash podcast. While you're there, be sure to check out the second book in my Living Joyfully with Unschooling series, Free to Live, Create a Thriving Unschooling Home. In it, I dive into the four characteristics that I found helped unschooling flourish in our home. Curiosity, patience, strong relationships, and trust. One reviewer wrote, 
really enjoyed this short and sweet book. It has marvelous one-liners, and though I'm not an underliner, I found myself underlining on every page. Another said, I believe it would benefit any homeschooler or parent to read this book as it re-emphasizes the importance of the relationship between a parent and a child in the learning process. I plan to reread this book. It is rich and full of gems. Give yourself some time to absorb it before rushing into unschooling. Until next time, have fun living and learning with your family.